Isaiah 21. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out through your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can come together, and we thank you for getting us here safely, Lord. We, we don't recognize how much you keep us together and how, uh, how fragile our lives truly are, but uh, we're grateful, God, that uh, you're orchestrating all things, Lord. And uh, we just pray, Father, for a time of refreshing tonight and for uh, just a study in your word, Lord, is a, a good thing. And so just teach us your ways tonight. Direct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through these chapters of um, pronounced judgments against the nations surrounding Judah. Judah uh, had um, was playing playing church, lip service to God, and uh, saying and and going and performing the sacrifices, saying they were followers of God, but not truly living it out. And and uh, and so God says, "Well, we're going to correct that, and we're, the way we're going to do that is I'm going to use my hammer." the Assyrians, to kind of pound you guys, and something like 46 cities in the region of Judah were taken by the Assyrians, but he promised at the beginning of Isaiah that the the city of Jerusalem would not fall, and in fact, we know by history that it doesn't. Um, And and so now we're into the part of the book. It started in chapter 13. It concludes in chapter 23, which is where we'll finish tonight. These pronounced judgments using the same hammer, Assyria, against the nations surrounding Judah, so that Judah would, the hope was that Judah wouldn't try to make an alliance with any of these nations in their effort to battle Assyria. That's not what God wanted. They didn't, he wasn't looking for a, you know, a coalition of ten nations to go against Assyria and Assyria to be defeated. That's not what God wanted. God wanted Judah to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord to turn to Him rather than to turn to the things of the world. And for you and I, that's a valuable lesson and one that I've had to learn, I don't know, a hundred times, because I'm still learning it, that we don't turn to the world first. We turn to God as the first button that we should be pushing in our lives as we run into difficulty and trial. And, And there are times I get it right. There's times you get it right. And there's times where I'm going to reach out to form an alliance that... God says, no, I want you to turn to me for all things. And so that's the lesson we've been looking at for the past month as we've gone through these chapters. We're going to finish up these burdens against the country surrounding Judah. It begins in Isaiah chapter 21, verse 1. It says, the burden against the wilderness of the sea. Now, I don't know if you know where that is. I had to figure that out and read some commentaries. As the whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. Now, if you've got a study Bible, it probably told you the burden against Babylon. The wilderness of the sea um, was the, the region of Babylon. And at the time of this prophecy, Babylon isn't an empire. It's barely even a city. It is a city, and it's starting to gain power. But they're really not going to come on the scene for another... 150 years or so. Um, And so it's interesting that God is predicting faithfully, uh, prophetically, their demise even before they have their beginning, if you would. But he is saying even small Babylon, Judah, you can't reach out to them at this point. It says, a distressing vision is declared to me, The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, 
O Elam, besiege, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease. Now this is a fascinating verse, because what the prophecy given is, is the command is given for Elam to besiege, and, or Elam to go up, and, and Media to besiege. Well, these regions, Elam and Media, at the time this prophecy is given, they aren't even cities. They're tribes. They're, they're a small group of people that have absolutely no power whatsoever and certainly aren't going to move against a bigger city like Babylon or an empire that Babylon is to become. So it's interesting. Well, another name for Elam is Persia, the Persians. And so what's being commanded here in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 21 God is commanding that the Medes and the Persians would go take care of Babylon. Well, we've already studied the book of Daniel. We know that's how it happens. We've seen the history as we went through the book of Daniel. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar uh, and, you know, came and, 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 and uh, made Babylon rise to the power that it was, probably the greatest empire under one ruler that there ever has been. And then Belshazzar takes over that, and we see in Daniel chapter 6 exactly what is predicted here in Isaiah chapter 21, hundreds, uh, a couple hundred years before, that the Medes and the Persians wipe out the Babylonians. Remember the head of gold and then the chest of silver? The head of gold was Babylon. The, the chest of silver were the Medes and the Persians, just the way it was given to Isaiah even before so. Pretty cool to look at. But at this point, as Isaiah is speaking these things, Elam and Media are little tribes, and yet they're going to wipe out the great and mighty Babylon. It says in verse 3, Therefore my loins are filled with pain. This is Isaiah speaking. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. That's a, a common um, analogy in, in Scripture. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I long, he turned into fear for me. I'm not one. I, I, I've heard, I've been battling this gout for a little while now. Um, into my second week, it's pretty painful still. Um, and my, my brother-in-law was telling me he's had gout on his knees, and he was telling me that um, he, he knows a guy that's had both kidney stones and gout. And he said gout is worse than kidney stones. Both of, them, both of them are caused by the same thing. And then I've also heard a line that says kidney stones are worth, worse than child labor. Um, now, I'm not one. I don't want to take anything away from child labor. I, 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 I think, ladies, you, you rock it, you know, and I, I have no interest in trying to top that. You know, I remember Bill Cosby, you take your bottom lip and you pull it over your head, and that's what labor feels like. And, you know, I, I remember all of that. And so... Um, so where he says here, you know, it's like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm not sure how Isaiah could truly know that, but that's what he likens this pain in his heart to. It's neither really here nor there, whether it's as much or as little, it doesn't much matter. The idea is this is breaking Isaiah's heart that he has to pronounce these judgments, even against nations that he wasn't necessarily you know, an alliance with for any reason. I mean, his, his heart was to Judah. But he, even as he pronounces these things, he's saying, 
My heart's broken. My, my loins, my, the seat of my emotion is filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me. I was dismayed when I saw that Babylon had to fall by the Medes and the Persians. The coming judgment of the Lord should break our hearts. It should be that when we know that the that, that judgment is coming by the righteous hand of God, it should break our hearts, just like it did Isaiah. That's something that we have to be careful of, especially in the, the world that you and I live in today. We need to be cautious that we're not wishing God's judgment on somebody. That's, a, that's a, not a good place to be in. It, it, it should be, our heart should be that we would desire people would repent as Isaiah's heart was. It says in verse 5, Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise, you princes, anoint the shield, for thus has the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, A lion, my lord, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. Then look, here comes the chariot of men made with, uh, uh, men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground." As the scene unfolds in Daniel uh, chapter 6, I believe it is, the Medes and Persians invade Babylon. They had besieged the city, and Belshazzar knew that the city was besieged, but he wanted to build up the confidence of the people, uh, the dignitaries and and the powers that be that were inside the city with him. And so what he did is he threw this grand party. He set the table, as it says there in verse 5. Prepare the table, set a watchman, uh, eat and drink, arise you princes. He had invited all the princes and the dignitaries of the land, trying to ease their mind. Everything is fine. And that was the night that Babylon fell. The handwriting was on the wall. Uh, The Medes and Persians come in under the city gate or under the city uh, wall and and invade and, and take the city. It's interesting there. It says, he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen. That's that would have been how the Babylonians would have fought. A chariot of donkeys, that's how the Medes fought. They, their, their chariots were driven by donkeys. And a chariot of camels, that's how the Persians fought. They were, they were, they were driven by camels. And so he sees the battle uh, unfold before him. I think what I want to draw attention to there is in verse 9, the phrase Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And if you're an end times person or intrigued by eschatology at all, That may sound familiar to you. In fact, that same phrase is used in the book of Revelation twice. It's in Revelation chapter 14. uh, An angel cries, Babylon has fallen. And then again in Revelation chapter 18, the same thing, (laughs) angel cries, Babylon has fallen. Remember I said at the beginning of Isaiah, the Bible can almost be broken down into a tale of two cities. The, 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 city of, the tale of the city of Jerusalem and the, city, the tale of the city of Babylon. And so throughout the, the book of Revelation, throughout church history, the culture of this world has been referred to as Babylon. And so when we read Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen, 
while that may mean the actual city in the book of Revelation, it, it, it could also mean, and, and it does also infer the idea of the world system has fallen, the world economy has fallen, the world powers and the world's ways have fallen. And in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, right after the cry goes out that Babylon has fallen, then there's a cry for God's people to come out of Babylon. And that's the cry that you and I need to hear when we hear Babylon is falling, the world is falling, that you and I, the God's people, are to, to, to step out, or as Romans 12 would say, to not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We don't align ourselves with Babylon's system as we walk with Christ. And we, don't, we can't have a foot in both worlds. We can't live that way. We have to strive to live a holy life. And so he, in Revelation chapter 18, the angel says, come out of Babylon. And that's the cry for you and I as well. Continuing on in verse 10, it says, Oh, my threshing and, my, and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. This is, he's, he's, he's saying, I, I, I'm giving you everything that God has given me. I've declared it to you. Now, another city that, that is going to have a burden in verse 11, the burden against Duma. He calls to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now, I think we're all on the same page. I really don't need to explain that at all, right? Sure, clear as mud. <laughs> it, how about this? And this is what I gleaned from it. You and I live in dark days, do we not? The, the darkness of the world grows ever darker. The troubles and the, the things that you and I see are, are troubling times. In dark days, when, like the watchmen, what of the night? In dark days, we are to be watchmen as well, looking for the morning, looking for that dawn when the, when the sun shall rise, the S-O-N, and the return of our King. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 48, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're to be aware and watching, watchmen on the wall, waiting for the morning to come. <clears throat> in verse 13, it says, the burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia, you will lodge... O you traveling companies of the Dedanites. Modern, the Dedan, if you were to look at Dedan on a modern map, we're talking about Saudi Arabia. The burden against Arabia, the Dedanites, the tribe of Dedan is what's known as Saudi Arabia today. O inhabitants of the land of Tima, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled. Tima is northeastern Arabia, and it was actually an oasis, one that had a beautiful um, source of water. And, and so they're calling to bring water to him who is thirsty. Verse 15, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, 
Within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fall. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. Though they had a great army, this, the mighty men of Kedar will be diminished. In fact, in 716, one year after this prophecy was given, 716 BC, Sargon from Assyria did in fact take Arabia. Prophecy is just history in advance. <laughs> God's right every time. Verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, the burden against the valley of vision. Interesting title. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? And so you have a study Bible at the top of chapter 22. It probably says the burden against Jerusalem. Uh, and that's what we're looking at, the burden against the valley of vision, probably referring to the Kidron Valley. We know that Jerusalem was a city built on a hill, which made it elevated above the region around it. So the region around it, in essence, was a valley. And in order to see what was happening in the valley, all somebody that lived in Jerusalem had to do was go to the rooftop. Uh, if they went up, as we were, you know, we talked about that people went up on the roofs commonly in those days. That's what we talked about on Sunday. They lowered the man through the roof. Um, you would go up on the rooftop and you could see over the city wall. And because you were a city on a hill, that gave you quite the view. They were able to see what was happening, in fact, down in the valley, uh, uh, the Kidron Valley. It says in verse 2, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, and then a joyous city. But there's a question mark there. A joyous city? Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. So the city was full of noise as the word came against it. This, and in fact, for good reason, the city was full of noise. It had swelled in population because as the cities in the region of Judah were being picked off one by one by the Assyrians... People didn't have a place to go or a safe place to go, and so they went to the fortified city of Jerusalem, right? You're behind walls there at least. And so the, the city had swelled in population, and so it's full of noise, a tumultuous city. But then Isaiah asks, a joyous city? Uh, should you be joyous in this moment, Jerusalem? Isaiah is troubled here that they seem to care more about the party than the trouble, Right? That's like Babylon. That's what Babylon had found itself doing. Was that it was, hey, yes, the, the city is besieged outside, but Belshazzar invites all the dignitaries to come and party. And, and that's almost the idea here is why are you a joyous city in this moment? Things are not looking good for you. It's kind of kind of the way I remember 9 11. 9 11 happened. And everybody got anxious for a minute. You know? Everything kind of, I don't, I don't remember if you remember all the details of everything, but everything just kind of shut down. You know, I, we, went, we closed down work and everybody went home that day and, and things just kind of laid low. And that, that was a Tuesday. And then that weekend was, you know, probably a church history attendance record. Right? Everybody suddenly, all of a sudden, wants to get holy because the terror you know, strikes our land. And then the following Sunday, things were back to normal, or pretty close to it. And the dying question of the day is, when do we get football back? 
right? They had canceled the football games, the college and the pro games that weekend, uh, right after 9-11. And everybody just wanted to know, are we getting football next weekend? What? Is that the right question to ask in the midst of all that was happening? But that's, that's what we care about as a nation, you know? It's, it's the same idea as what, what Isaiah is trying to portray here. Uh, it, it was happening in Jerusalem. They were more worried about the party than the trouble. Verse 3, All your rulers have fled together. They're captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. This is Isaiah speaking now. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Again, hear his heart in that. Upon seeing the pain that is coming, uh, that, that is, is going to happen, Isaiah's brokenhearted. When we see God being, oh, it's almost the, his hands being forced because the people refuse to repent. His hand is being forced. He's long-suffering, and, and he, he, he longs that we would return to him. But eventually, judgment must come. And Isaiah is the bird, the, carrying the burden of that judgment, and it breaks his heart that he has to declare it. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. It came to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gates. That's how it all came down. The, the Assyrians marched right up to the city of Jerusalem before they were before God came in, in defense of Jerusalem and sent the angel 185,000 slain in one night. But as they looked out over the wall down into the valley of the, the Kidron Valley, it was filled with the Assyrian, Assyrian chariots. The, 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 the men were prepared to besiege the city. It says in verse 8, He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Rather than looking to God for defense here, which was the, the hope of all of this work, they turned to things that had brought them victory before. The house of the forest, that was a, uh, the resources that they had had from the, the house of David and the house of Solomon. And they were turning to their weapons rather than turning to God. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. They dug a tunnel as, uh, in, in preparation for the besiegement. They dug a tunnel from the pool of Siloam to the spring of Gihon. It's 1,777 feet through solid rock. They dug this tunnel so that they could have fresh water if the city were to be besieged. The, 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 the spring of Gihon would just flow into the city, into the pool of Siloam. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. They destroyed the city in preparation for the besiegement. They tore down the houses in order to build up the wall in defense. It says you also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker. This is where God's heart is broken over this. You did not look to his, its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning 
for baldness. That was a bad thing back then. <laughs> Beautiful now. For baldness and for girding with sackcloth, all of those are signs of mourning. They would shave their heads. That's the idea. Weeping, mourning, shaving their head, and girding themselves with sackcloth. But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating, mink and, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The, 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 the people of Jerusalem had embraced fatalism. They had embraced the, the cultures around them. You may as well live it up today. That's what we hear, you know. I heard that all the way through high school. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Rather than turning to God in sorrow and repentance and repairing that relationship, coming to Him in humility, they embrace fatalism and they live it up because they were dead soon or so they thought. Brokenness is the first step back to God. And it's a good step that you and I need to be comfortable in taking. We talked about on Sunday as followers of Christ, we need a willingness to be uncomfortable. One of the ways that we can get uncomfortable is by allowing brokenness in our lives. Brokenness is the first step back to God. It's when God can really start to work in our lives. I was reading my leadership devotion by A.W. Tozer, about, and uh, he's on the subject of revival right now, and I read a great quote yesterday. He said, uh, he said, revival comes after midnight. I got thinking about that. And, he, and his explanation was, if we, if we want to see revival in our day, in our age, it comes on sorrow. It comes on pain. It comes on brokenheartedness for the lost. It comes on midnight that we... We walk through a dark time because in that dark time, what is birthed in us in preparation for revival is a desire, a, a, a longing, um, a desperation to see God move. It's only through pain and difficulty and trial and hardship that we can, our hearts can rightly be prepared that we, we desperately cry out to God. It's pressing past the normalcy of our prayers and, and into a, a desperate prayer that says, God, we have to. We need to see you move. And the only way our hearts come to that is in the darkness of midnight. Revival comes after midnight. Brokenness, the first step where God can begin to work. The people of Jerusalem didn't have that. And that was the issue. It says in verse 14, Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. That's strong. He knew they weren't going to repent. Thus says the Lord God of hosts. I like that. He was, he's reminding them of who he is. The Lord God of hosts. The God of the angel armies is the way the message translates that phrase. The Lord of Sabaoth. Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, 
as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. This is a, a special word as he's laying out the burden against Jerusalem. Now he calls and speaks a, a specific word to a specific man. This man, Shebna, must have been a dignitary or a leader of some sort in the city of Jerusalem. Someone who evidently should have known better. That's why he's getting named here. Somebody that, that knew the right way. Perhaps somebody in Hezekiah's um, cabinet, you know, as Hezekiah was trying to turn the, the nation to the Lord, and, and, and Shebna should have been on that same page with him, but he had, had other plans. God's going to deal with him in a strong way, and in fact, as it said there at the end, replace him. I'll drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. That's a sad place that sometimes God has to take people to, pulling them out of roles of leadership, or we saw that, you know, with Elijah when he, when he was crying against God after his encounter with Jezebel, and God says, I'm not going to put up with that. I'm not going to deal with you anymore, Elijah. You need to go name your replacement. Go get Elisha. And, and, and it's a sad day when, when we're so stubborn against the ways of the Lord that he says, okay, I'll just, you know, the, the, the plan of God, the kingdom of God is not going to be thwarted. If you're not a willing participant, he'll just go around you. And that's, that's a sad place when you get to that place. That's where Shebna was. Um, verse 20, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, the man that would step up. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Now that's an interesting verse there. Isaiah 22, 22. The, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. The, the lineage of David is going through Eliakim. And in what I think what Isaiah is seeing as, as perhaps, oh, I, don't, I don't want to make speculation as to perhaps what, but he, I believe he's seeing through Eliakim to the one in the, in the line of David that would come after Eliakim, that being Jesus. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut. That's, again, if you studied the book of Revelation, that's familiar language. And he shall shut and no one shall open. In the letters to the churches, uh, the church of Philadelphia, the, 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 the church of the last days in many ways. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. 
That's, that's how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 3. The one who, in the same description given here in Isaiah chapter 22. And this is what Jesus says about that church, Philadelphia. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you've kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The encouragement there, and I just wanted to read that so I could encourage you and I with the same thing. Keep his word. When the, when the world would want to turn and deny the power of the Bible, keep his word and don't deny his name. We are Christ followers. And that's the same message that Judah is given by Isaiah. That's what God is hoping for in the days of Isaiah. Keep my word. Don't, don't desecrate my name. Don't turn from my, don't deny me. Yet they wouldn't listen. This is an interesting verse, verse 23. I will fasten him, speaking of Eliakim, but also speaking of Jesus through Eliakim, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. The word peg there is, is a nail. Now, it's not like the nail that Christ was crucified with. We can't draw that exact inference. But it's like a tent peg, a, a massive stake. Right in your margin, next to verse 23 there, if you don't have the note already, Zechariah chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Zechariah 10, 3 and 4. This is um, God speaking. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts, there's our, our term again, will visit his flock. The Lord of hosts will visit his flock the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. From him comes the cornerstone. Well, we know that phrase, Jesus is the cornerstone. Listen to this. From him, the tent peg. Him Now likening him to a tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, the ruler together. The Lord will visit his flock, Jesus coming to earth. And then in verse 4, he is the tent peg. So go back to verse 23 of Isaiah 22. I will fasten him as a tent peg in a secure place. Got that in your mind? Jesus, the tent peg. Now look at the next verse, verse 24. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. I and the father are, are one. The offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, everything is hung on him, the peg from the cups to all the pitchers. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. Wow. Pretty cool prophecy about Christ. 
In that day, the, the, the peg will be removed, cut down, and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off. Sin redeemed, for the Lord has spoken. It's echoed in Daniel chapter 9. It's echoed in Psalm 22. Really cool prophecy of Jesus there in Isaiah 22:25. Finishing up, we'll go to chapter 23. Well, this will move relatively quickly. Uh, we're actually going to read two chapters, read um, almost a whole other chapter out of Ezekiel, but it'll move quickly, maybe. Verse one: the burden of it's raining. Where do you, what do you, what do you got to do? You know, what's on Wednesday night at eight thirty? All right. The burden of Tyre. I think that's how you say it. Tyre, Tyre. The burden of Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. So Tyre, now the burden against Tyre. Tyre was a a maritime city, meaning it was a, a coastal city and its strength was that it was on the waters. Um, Tyre became a wealthy and vast city by having a huge navy. They were, they were a force to be reckoned with on the sea uh, and, and unparalleled in that day. Um, they fought their battles on the sea and they won many battles and they became wealthy that way. But they also used their navy for the movement of cargo. And that movement of cargo was known all over the world. They would, some speculate that, that ships from Tarshish actually went to North America. And, and they made their coin, they made their bank by moving the grain of the Nile Delta. Now, if you're here last week when we saw the, the burden against Egypt, we know that through, through God's hand and Assyria coming down and, and, and God's burden against Egypt, that there was going to come a time when the, the Nile Delta was going to be a mess and, and crops weren't going to be plentiful. Well, that's going to affect Tyre's um, business. That's going to affect their, their bank account. And so it's, it's going to all work together here. We get a fuller picture of this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 26. So flip over to there real quick. We're, we're going to read a few verses of this prophecy against Tyre. Ezekiel chapter 26. Eight verses, not too bad. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up. And so he's, he's declaring here in Ezekiel that it's not just going to be one nation. It's not just going to be Assyria. And in fact, it wasn't Assyria at all that was going to come up against the nation of Tyre. It says it will be many nations like the waves and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. This is interesting language when, when you hear what happened. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God, and it shall become plunder for the nations. Also, her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword. It wasn't just going to be the city of Tyre, it was going to be the entire region. They they shall know that I am the Lord, 
For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north, names him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and an army with many people. And he will slay with the sword your daughter, villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. Very specific on how how God was going to level this punishment. He will direct you... uh, He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots. When he enters your gates, as men enter a city that has been breached, with the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. So we get this greater picture here in Ezekiel of what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 23, that, that a nation was going to come against Tyre, the, the maritime city. Right back in verse, stay in Ezekiel, uh, but I'll read verse 1 again. The burden against Tyre. Wail, O you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. So the land of Cyprus, Nebuchadnezzar, he, 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 um, he's going he's gonna to be the one, as specifically mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 26, to come against Tyre. Now, history, right? As history unfolds. This is so cool, I think. I get geeked out by this stuff. 585 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, goes to Tyre. He wipes out the region, the sister cities or the daughter cities, whatever. He, he clears the land all around the city. He lays besiege to the city just the way that it was. Horses and, and this massive army encamped all the way around the city. And, and the walls are fortified. And, and sometimes in those days, instead of just building a, a, a siege mound or a ramp up over the wall or whatever, they would just wait. They knew that if they encamped around the city and they didn't let things in, that eventually the city would have to surrender or very often they turned to cannibalism. You suddenly have no more food. You start killing your brother and eating him for dinner. And, and so, um, so they were, Nebuchadnezzar was content to wait it out. And then he got called away for a while. And then he came back and he waited some more. And then he got called away to another battle, and he came back. For 13 years, he besieged the city of Tyre. Finally, they they build up a siege ramp, they take the city, and when they get inside the city, there's nobody there. There's there's a few stragglers left, and and what they came to realize is as as, they would be called away and then called back and called away and called back, they moved the city of Tyre. They, all the people moved to an island one mile into the ocean. So they essentially went out the back door and went to an island and rebuilt the city on, the, on this island. Well, Nebuchadnezzar saw it and said, you know, once he finally got in the city, he's like, okay, they, they're gone. So he laid waste to a city that was no longer a city because the city had moved. He didn't have a navy. He didn't have a way to get to them. So he left them alone. Now watch. Look at verse 12 of Ezekiel chapter 26. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Right? More history. Ready? 
Sorry, I get excited about this stuff. 332 BC, a couple hundred years later, 250 years later, Alexander the Great comes to the coastland. He sees Tyre out in the, on the horizon. He doesn't have an ar- a navy either, but he doesn't give up. He commands his army to take the ruins of the old city and build a bridge. They build a one-mile causeway with the ruins of the old city from the, from the coastline to the island and take the city. The exact way it was given to us in the book of Ezekiel. They will, lay, um, they will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. That's exactly what happened. That's the way it was all laid out. He builds a mile-long causeway and then takes the city. I meant, and I forgot to get it for you today, Google Tyre today. It's a peninsula. I mean, it's, it's, you can see, the, I mean, you know, the coastline comes down and there's a, 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 a land mass that comes out from the coastline to an island. It's still there today. It's, it's just, I don't know, sorry, you guys don't seem all excited. I'll take my notes and go home. I, I think it's cool when God says something's going to happen, and it does the exact way that he said it's going to happen hundreds of years before. That's pretty cool. All right, back to Isaiah. In verse 2, chapter 23, it says, Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great waters the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue, speaking of the Nile River, and she is a marketplace for the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor, nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men, nor bring up virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Why? Because of the trade agreement that they had. You know, the ships of Tarshish, the ships of Tyre, were the ones that carried the grain of Egypt all over the world. It was a, a beneficial mutual agreement for them. And so when they hear that Tyre has fallen, that's going to break Egypt's heart because nobody's going to be able to move the grain. Verse 6, the cross, cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastlands. Yeah, that's an interesting. Cross over to Tarshish. Do you, Tarshish, ring a bell? Anybody? Something else happened in Tarshish? Yeah, Jonah, right on. And then the next word is whale. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Cross over Tarshish, whale, you inhabitants of the coastland. Just saying. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to dwell, who has taken the counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. The whole region of Tyre was affected. And what we recognize is in verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. And when the Lord of hosts says it, it comes to pass. Finishing up the chapter. Overflow through your land like the river, O O daughter of Tarshish, There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, 
You will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not Assyria, founded for its founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Jonah 1.3. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah had been given a message. He was a prophet, just like Isaiah. A message from God to declare to the Assyrians, right? The hammer. The hammer we've been talking about for the past month. God, he had been given a message to go to Nineveh, the, 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 the stronghold of the, the Assyrians. And Jonah didn't want to. <laughs> And so he runs the opposite direction. He, 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 he's like, where on the map is the farthest place I could go? Throw a dart at Spain. Tarshish. Just get me there. As far away as possible. Why? Because he knew that if he gave the message of God to the people of Nineveh, they would repent. And he didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to have the judgment of God. He's like, God, sick them. They, they've earned it. You go get them, God, and I'm not going to carry your message because if I go tell them, they're going to repent and you're not going to deliver your judgment. And so I'm running the other way. Well, we all know the story of Jonah. If you don't, it's four chapters. Check it out. It doesn't go well for him. It doesn't go well for him. <laughs> he wanted them to be leveled by God. So, all right, let's finish up the chapter, and then I'll close with a thought. Verse 15, Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. At the end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot. It, it, it did, in fact, happen over the course of 70 years. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord, and it will not be treasured nor laid up. For her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. And so as we close tonight, let's compare the heart of Isaiah and the heart of Jonah, right? The heart of Isaiah, we read it twice throughout these chapters, that he was so grieved that he was broken over having to deliver these messages of judgment, even against the nations surrounding Judah. It, it, it weighed heavy on his heart that he had to pronounce this judgment. Compare that to the heart of Jonah, who said, no, I'm not going to give this message because the people will repent, and I don't want the people to repent. I want you to kill them. A prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord to the people. And you and I in 2015 have been given 
a message to declare on behalf of the Lord to the people. We call it the good news. And the, 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 the commission is the great commission. We carry, like the, mess, like the prophets of old, we carry a message from the Lord to the people that there is a coming judgment that they cannot escape an impending doom that they are facing, that without the salvation of Christ, without the the saving work that Jesus went through on the cross, they're not going to make it. They're going to perish. And the question is, as you and I carry that message, what heart are you carrying it with? The heart of Isaiah? Broken over the fact that people are dying and going to hell. Our friends are going to go to hell. They don't know Christ. Or Jonah says, kill them all. I, I got my ticket. Who cares about it? Let everybody else be damned to hell. Who cares? I think far too often, our hearts and our mouths say we're with Isaiah, but our actions say we're with Jonah. Because we don't speak to our neighbors. We don't get uncomfortable. We don't rise up in a holy boldness and live differently from the rest of this world. We don't shine as light in the ever-darkening world. What heart are you carrying the message that God has given us to carry? Isaiah or Jonah? I'll close on that thought tonight. I want us to dwell on that and think about it. Lord, it's my prayer that we would align ourselves with the humility of Isaiah who was broken over the message of coming judgment. Lord, you're seeking to save the lost still today, and you're long-suffering in that, Lord. You desire that none would perish, and you've made a way that none have to perish, but all could come to you through your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we know that none are outside your reach, but you have given us a message that far too often we leave on the shelf. That far too often we leave in our throat. Pray that we would have a greater burden like Isaiah. That we would look less like Jonah. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.